This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Evan. And today we're talking about The Wood Beyond the World, a 19th century novel. I, I saw 1894 and 1896. I think it must be 1894. A novel by William Morris. Uh, it's kind of a novel. doesn't feel like much of a novel, really. Um, and it's, it's kind of a fairy tale novel. Fairy tale, sort of, yeah. It, it's supposed romance i don't know what to call it it's it's definitely supposed to be i think i mean looking back at it now what people say about it (laughs) is that it's a it's one of the first fantasy novels set in an actual secondary world rather than a fantasy novel uh with you know set in our world with goblins or you know shakespeare did a lot of fantastic stuff in his stuff that this i can see why people point to this as that um (laughs) But because of the way it's written, which is in a pseudo-medieval style, like Thomas Mallory, um, it's very, very difficult to read, especially in the audio, um, which is how I read it. Uh, Yeah, that's how I did it, too. I I mean, it was kind of soothing, but that was the problem. Very soothing. Too soothing. I was kind of like hypnotically engaged in it, but I'd have to go back. It's like, I don't know what happened in that chapter. It's like, it's really tough. The diction of it. Actually, I was thinking about the magic flute. Is that a secondary world? I do not know. That that Mozart opera. Uh, I don't think so. I I think most, most, there are, there are, there are some other things that, almost pass for what this is but they yeah. usually are tied to our world and i'm not sure that there are any ties to our world other than you know it's in english and um you know it has sort well, of you have those utopias right where you kind of yes. go to a different place but it's still set in our world yes it's, it's set like in our world somewhere. but an island that is not known to us right or uh or it, it starts in our world and it goes into the fairyland right I can see many, 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 many interesting um, connections out of this, but the the main takeaway I was thinking about how impressive it was. I was thinking about this early early this morning, about how impressive it is that um, the power that this book has is not in itself really. Is that's mm-hmm. the argument I'm making in my head while I'm finishing it off, right? It's because I, I've just finished pretty much finished listening to it, and I'm like. Yeah, this isn't the greatest book ever. But what I would say about it is so fascinating is that Tolkien, the guy who mm-hmm. is most responsible for the shape of modern traditional fantasy, not, you know, I don't know, urban fantasy or anything like that, right? Modern traditional fantasy in, in novel length, or at least novel length turned into trilogy length. This book is so influential upon Tolkien that it basically gives fantasy its modern shape. That is, there is a world outside of our world that is medieval, as in medieval technology, medieval in manners. And the, one of the first places I saw that in this book is with this very archaic phrase, which is used on a very popular modern television show, which is bend the knee. 
know that? Oh. Yeah. Okay. We can. Yeah, I'll just read. All the, yeah, right. I'll do my best. Um, uh, so I was saying something about how this phrase "bend the knee" shows up, and and how you know that it it's entered the lexicon of modern people in the United States. Anyways, I hear people yeah. on television saying, you know, people need to bend the knee to Trump or something like that. Um, it's a very odd phrase, but it comes from this period, the pseudo-medieval uh, fantasy novels and from the pseudo-medieval language. Yeah, so th this is what really fascinated me about this, because, again, coming from the, the science fiction fandom, I've, I've always had this kind of idea and I still sort of have this, is that there's something Promethean about science fiction. It's, mm. it's about the future, it's, it's new, new technologies, the potentials of human liberation. You read Heinlein, you know, the moon is a harsh mistress, and he's playing with all these different family structures, and it's always like something new, right? Mm -hmm. And then fantasy always pulls you back to the old, right? Yes. And you get this even with Tolkien, right? The Return of the King. Like, you know, after all of this, we're going back to these old systems from long ago. So there's a kind of a conservatism in... Yes. In fantasy, and so I was really interested in what uh, a socialist would do with this. And we've already, of course, looked at that um, his utopia, William Morris's utopia, mm -hmm. news from nowhere in, a, in that previous episode. And it and his utopia is really set in kind of a medieval. So there's a this uh, this kind of backward-looking anti-capitalism as well as the forward-looking anti-capitalism mm -hmm. that. And the, you get the, in the science fiction, you get that forward-looking anti-capitalism. And, it, you know, it, maybe we shouldn't be so hard, I guess. And I, I do think what Morris does here, there is some radical elements in this that, that, that make it not really a conservative tale, despite having kind of a, you know, a monarchical restoration at the end and all, all that. Um, but now what, with Martin, he's really trying to attack these tropes, I think. He's trying to and make so for it him, real. Bend the knee. Bend right. the knee is like the odiousness of the feudal system. It, yes. it sums up just everything that's disgusting about the whole feudal system, right? Yeah, it's People sort of the anti-Tolkien symbols. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it says here's the here's that secondary world you guys said you wanted. You want to live here? And I'm like, no, yeah. thank you. <laughs> <laughs> fun to watch, not fun to live in. Um, yeah, and at the end of this this book, you you do have that kind of you know. You know, it's kind of everything's normal, right? And there's a little bit of talking about the future yep. of what happened to these are the bear people and, and kind of the kingdom goes on. So it has that same kind of Tolkien-esque feel, right? That mm -hmm. at, at the end, it just goes on and everything's happy. Everything's fine. There's a little bit of talk of war, though. Yep. In that final section. It's, so it's, it's, not, it's a bit ominous, I guess. More ominous than Return of the King. Yes. It's 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 also, I mean, it's hard to keep track of what's going on as we were mm -hmm. talking. But there there are things that stood out to me, scenes, and especially in as I, I went, I, I literally restarted the book probably a dozen times trying to get into the groove. Wow. And I've done this before, like, you know, there's a a very interesting book. I I don't want to say good book because <laughs> it's very difficult, but it's very rewarding too. Um called The Nightland by William Hope Hodgson. It's from 1912. And I I assume that he was doing 
this that that was his take on this in a certain sense, mm-hmm. not because of the setting, but because of the language. So in that in that case, the novel is is uh, it is a 17th century ju- document um, about a guy's vision of the end of Earth. Um, so it's set uh, in the I guess the dying Earth. The Earth is you know a very very far future. Everybody's wearing like power armor sort of. Um, there's one city left. Oh, oh. Uh, the Earth's sun has disappeared into a tiny dot in the sky, and uh, there's a woman who needs to be saved outside the city. Uh, he goes and saves her, and there's a quest, and it's really hard to follow what's going on. But the imagery is super impressive with these giant alien things that seem frozen but are actually just slowly moving, and it's just an amazing, amazing book. But it totally well, here, H.P. To... Lovecraft's essay, Supernatural Horror and Literature, describes the novel as one of the most potent pieces of macabre imagination ever written. Yes, and it, it is. So I must have read that sentence several times in my life, but I never thought to actually pick up this book. It's it's a very potent story, but it's incredibly long. Uh, I, I don't want to say 24 hours, but it might be 20 hours long, which is a very long book. It might be 18 yeah. hours long. I'm not 100% sure now. It's been a while. But also, it has this kind of old-fashioned language. So, in that case, it's 17th century, pseudo-17th century. Here, it's Thomas Mallory, which is, uh, I, I think that is, he's like 600 years ago, right? Shakespeare's tough. Mm-hmm. This is yeah, even is. tougher, right? And he's he's mm-hmm. not even doing it 100%. He's, he's mostly doing it. And he has a kind of... Uh, in the same way that Lovecraft does, a sort of a fetishizing of 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 strange words, words that seem strange to us, um, because they're just so separated from our modern usage. But uh, if you can get past that, which is very difficult, <laughs> and that's why it bucks so many people off of it, I think. If you can get past that, there are some very interesting things going on, like. Um, uh, I note the the uh, Wikipedia entry is very bad at giving uh, details, um, but I think they do a pretty good job given how hard it is to get details out of this book. Uh, there's ma- basically two main characters in this book, right? There's Golden Walter and oh, you mean the, back to, to back to uh, Wood Beyond the World? Yes, the Wood Beyond the World. Yeah, the Wikipedia doesn't help at all. It's pretty weak. Um, we've got Golden Walter. And there's Golden the maid. Walter and the maid. And she doesn't have a name, which I was like, I, I must have missed it at some point. But I'm pretty sure she just never gets a name. Um, and uh, turns out that the maid, from my reading, what's going on in this book, she's a goddess. Is that not correct? Or is she faking to be a goddess? Yeah, but she's also a slave. And she's got this mistress, right? So mm-hmm. the, the lady, it's the three characters, the three characters he sees kind of first as images or I don't know, just foreshadowing. He yeah. sees them a couple times, right? It's the maid, the mistress and the dwarf. Yeah. And, and, and the maid, she's the slave. She's the slave of, of her, but she's got these powers and she's in control of so much of the the story. Yes. It's if despite being a slave, she's she turns it on the head. I think there's there is a degree of kind of radicalism in this character. It's not he ends up with the princess, right? Mm-hmm. It's 
there's kind of like a slave revolt worked into the tale. Yes, there is. And there's a lot about slavery. And, uh, it, it, there's, a, yeah. there's a lot. I, I mean, I think that this is a kind of book that if you read it more carefully than I did, which, I, I, I mean, I, I did my best with the time I had, but uh, it's a short book, but it's very hard to uh, get to, especially in audio, and I'm sort of stuck in that unless it's really short i i just don't make yeah i printed it out but i i did a lot of kind of commute listening and there's sections that are a bit fuzzy but that's the thing when you listen to this it's especially that recording i don't know if a different it's the only recording that exists yeah Corey samuels it's It's well done but yeah she's a good narrator but this is this is also the text is it is literally hypnotic uh because you, you you're listening you're with it but you're also separated from it and mm-hmm. and and that's actually to do a lot with the language rather than you know the per- particular yeah, I so. performance I, there are no other audio editions of this book even the one on audible is is Corey samuels mm-hmm. but um okay uh what i think is really interesting is that if you've got uh if you've got more time you could probably go in and uh do an analysis of the themes that he's working with and the thing is, is he? I don't think he is working with themes. I think he's trying to follow the the old formula, sort of the coincidence formula, where you've got all these sort of ridiculous things happening, and then the only through line is the fact that this is a book, um, which is a, a very old way of telling stories of this kind, like almost fairy tale like, with with a dwarf mm-hmm. and um, like. Are here's a question: Are the bear people actually bears, or are they people? Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I think I think it's I not think clear. They're sort of people, but I assume yeah. they're bears that are people. <laughs> like, yeah, like they they can interbreed with humans. It sounds like because she makes all these. By the end, I just sort of thought of them like sort of like orcs or something. Yeah, and again, that's a Tolkien influence coming uh, anachronistically back to this. But they're not they're not uh, holy orcs, right? They're just more like Vikings or something because. Yeah. They're they're people like and they have values, but the values are not th- those of everybody else. And so, but we have the dwarf, and the dwarf is often like very primal and animalistic in the way he's portrayed. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a humanoid creature. I don't know. This is is this a language of fantasy? A humanoid creature, but it's like of the woods, of kind of feral. Mm-hmm. There's something feral about the dwarf, I think. Absolutely. Like, and maybe that, the bear people have. It fits in with uh, with other uh, fantastic stories, Beowulf and all that stuff. You know, the whole Norwegian, Scandinavian philosophy on what what's going on in the woods is slightly different than that of the English and the you know the Scottish and that sort of the Welsh. But they're they're also inter intertwined. But I, I I'm I'm trying to say there's another way to read it. But the main way I was reading this book as what's going on is this is actually about his own life <laughs> like really interestingly about his own life um morris is a fascinating powerful figure um despite the fact that you know he's not going to be popular with um the powers that be today you know given that mm-hmm. he's a socialist and he's he's anti-capitalist and he's anti a ton of things that you know the establishment would not uh, be in favor of, he is incredibly important for his, um, his, he has like a big splash 
for the fact that he should be unpopular. Um, and, and part of that, I think, is because he was just so busy. He's always working on many, many projects. He was not just a, you know an artist. He was also a factory owner who you know siding yeah, with his own people with the workers and he's a he's got his own newspaper he's got a bookbinding business he's he's part of the pre-raphaelite brotherhood in a certain sense right um his wife what people could do before tv you know oh my god right amazing but i mean i mean, so he's still exceptional and there are still exceptional people like that but yeah. i don't know it's yeah like, i wonder if it was easier back in those days when you well, part of it, as many distractions, part perhaps. of it is he was born wealthy, right? He was born into a wealthy family, yeah. um, and he apparently had many, many jobs and just quit whenever he didn't like one of them, which was a lot of them. Um, and he could afford to do that, um, but his his own life story really fits into this world in a certain way if you look at it the right way, I think. But it's also an escape from his own life story, which is fascinating. And this is one of the things about fantasy that's said, you know, even more so than about any other genre. Uh, even science fiction, you know, people think of it as escapist. But some science fiction is not as escapist as others, right? You know, space opera is pretty escapist. But uh, Childhood yeah, I think Dan... most of it's is, pretty grounded, yeah. Well... But, yeah, I think that's true. The escapism of, of fantasy is... It's I don't know. Sometimes the critique, sometimes the the justification for it. It's but yeah, the whole pure. story here is opting out. I mean, even if you just read the first ten pages, it's it's an opting out tale. It is, and I think it's that going from tale. place to place. <laughs> that that's why I, I kept going back because I've been working on Melville again mm-hmm. lately, my hundred pages stuff. But the early Melville novels always have this feel that it's just people drifting from place to place and you get this episodicness but it's always about someone's not content in one place so they go to somewhere else yeah looking for and, new work looking for a new life yeah when you think about tolkien like frodo never wanted to leave no right but but within a page we realized this golden walter he doesn't want anything to do with his old life <laughs> so he's opting out he's going to croatan uh, yeah and um i i want to tie this to what's going on in in uh William Morris's life. You know, his mm-hmm. wife is one of the most famous faces from the 19th century. Have you seen uh, what his wife looks like? Um, his Jane wa- Burden? Yeah, Jane Burden, a- a.k.a. Jane Morris. Um, oh, she, yeah. She is uh, the face of the pre-Raphaelites, right? Um, and the pre-Raphaelites, like, I didn't know, I don't, I know a little bit about art history, but it mostly starts in the 20th century. Um, I, I didn't realize that the pre-Raphaelites were not before Raphael, (laughs) 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 which you would assume just based on the fact they're called pre-Raphaelites. But basically the the, uh, pre-Raphaelites are a group of 19th century, uh, artists who said, we hate Raphael. So we're going to go back to the things before Raphael and those those guys. Um, yeah. And and that's our mission, right? So you think pre-Raphaelites are before, but no, they're not. So this, this very striking woman, um, there's photographs of her uh, showing, you know, that they're, they're I don't know, uh, changing, changing her reality strictly from realism to... A sort of hyper medieval realism in a certain sense, right? Yeah. Um, and but what didn't they like about Raphael? 
Is that kind of like this? Oh, they have. I, all I just sorts remember of... from Raphael this this Jesus on the cross painting with the angels, and like Jesus looks like he's having a happy time. Yeah. And normally, when we teach history of the Renaissance, we compare that with like, um, is it? I forget who painted this one from the Northern Renaissance with this tortured Jesus and suffering and pain. That somehow there's something kind of fake about Raphael. Everything is very. So there's a, I, uh, I read quite a lot about uh, this over the last week, the pre-Raphaelites, mm-hmm. and they have, like, there was a bunch of sort of um, detail rules, like you have to do, uh, here's their um, early doctrines uh, given by William Michael Rossetti. One, to have genuine ideas to express. Two, to study nature attentively so as to know how to express them. Three, to sympathize with what is direct and serious and heartfelt in previous art to the exclusion of what is conventional and self-parading and learned by rote. Mm-hmm. And four, most of indispensable of all, to produce thoroughly good pictures and statues. That doesn't really give you a sense of what the pictures will be like, but one of the things that came uh, out is that um, there should be attention in the places where they're not normally given attention. So if, like I'm looking at one of uh, Dante Gabriel Rossetti's images of Jane Burden, a.k.a. Jane Morris, and, you know, there's great attention to her eyebrows, but there's also great attention to the ivy on the wall behind her. Um, and the, okay. this one's called Porcupine, and it's just she's holding a fruit, so that... Yeah, I think we're looking at the same one. Yeah, and, and you know, that's... It, it, they've definitely got a style that you can sort of identify, especially given how often she shows up in his images, but... Um, this guy, Rossetti, who's got a famous sister, I, I know more, I think. Um, she wrote Goblin Market, um, which is an amazing, uh, striking poem. Um, <laughs> she, uh, or he, was cheating on his buddy, William Morris, with his model, uh, William Morris's wife, Jane Burden. Um, and, oh, man. And they... This was not to. This is not making William Morris happy. But they actually lived together in the same house that that Morris had bought, right? <laughs> like, it, the, all three of them are living in the same house. She's cheating on him uh, with his friend, who's betrayed him uh, with his wife, and mm-hmm. that this continues. Like he doesn't leave, right? And as oh, like, I, I'm seeing the entry in the Wikipedia. Yeah. On, oh, is on about her? Is that what's? Yeah, in 1884, Jane Morris met the poet and political activist Blunt. Wilfred Scrum Blunt at a house party given by her close friend Rosalind Howard. This appears to have been immediate attraction between them. By 1887, at the latest, they become lovers. Their sexual relationship continued until 1894, which is the date this book was published, yeah, right? Yeah. They remained close friends until his death. I don't know. It, it's. Like Cosima, what's her Cosima uh, Leitz and Wagner. Uh-huh. I forget that the, the exact details of that story, but Cosima, like Cosima Leitz is Leitz's daughter, right? And she was married to a composer, conductor, and then Wagner basically stole her from him. But there was like a kind of a menage a trois going for a while before Wagner eventually married Cosima. But he just kind of moved in and it was just took her, and then he accepted this the the husband i forget his name 
they what what can you do right you you can yeah, murder it, them it, you can leave but it was this or long you can time kind of an it. Wagner. yeah so but Wagner in this case Wagner was a more famous artist so you know he kind of controlled the narrative here Morris gets to put in his his say yeah and he's also paying for the house they're living in you know like hmm. um but he's also a social activist and he he wants to empower women right so what can he do as golden walter he he can escape right he he can escape and like i'm not a, i'm yeah. not 100% sure the image of the woman that there's a, a funny scene in this book um the the uh-huh. maid uh when he when he first meets her or shortly thereafter uh the maid says hey um do you have a girl at home um and he's like well i do but i i quit her right and then she says that chapter 10 something like I think that it's chapter 10. and then yeah, she says um what she looked like and he says well you know she's very attractive but not in my mind in a certain way and she says well in comparison to me right and there's a very interesting way of phrasing it it makes me think that all the women in this book are the same woman not just the later maids that are both uh slaves and uh mistresses you know She's tested by the bear people at uh, one point. You know, are you really a goddess? And I'm like, I don't think she's a goddess. And then, and then she starts doing like the flowers start blooming, and and then she makes some promises about you know I need to go to the mountains get some water, um, but when I do, I will send many gifts to you. And it's like, wow, so this is a goddess, okay? And a golden Walter has. I I think there's at least twice in the book where he is asked to uh, be the servant to her as a mistress, right? And that is not to the maid, true. yes, yes, and maid. that's not that's not their true relationship, she says, right? But that's what we will we will present, and that is interesting. Like William Morris is a really deep thinker on certain subjects and here he's confront he's he's the way i'm looking at it he writes this book as an escape right not an escape for for um for the working class out of the hell of capitalism which is what the other book is about that we read uh news from nowhere um but rather as an escape for uh, the personal escape from the personal um displeasures of one's own life escape from you know I, i'm the son uh, golden walter's the son of a wealthy businessman who's well thought of his character like i should just probably bring up the opening text um because it's <laughs> it really sort of speaks to william morris's um own life let me i'll let you speak while i dig that up oh um, would be on the world yeah i think the I thought a lot about the opting out narrative. And I, I do think they're related. I think I read somewhere, I don't think it was Wikipedia, maybe it was somewhere else. I was digging around trying to get some help with this text where Morris was actually pretty upset when socialists were saying, were like claiming this as a, as a political tract. This one? And wow. Yeah. Like some socialists were saying like, this is all an allegory for capitalism or something. And Morris was saying, no, it's not that at all. No, it's not. You know, I don't think so. I guess it was like Morris's socialist allies were just assuming everything he writes is political. Right. And Morris is asserting some kind of intellectual autonomy here, which I think is, 
interesting about him. But I do think there's there's kind of the systemic, the kind of the revolutionary narrative, the utopian narrative, this idea we're going to bring big change to society. But there's also that aspect of of the opting out, and I, I think sometimes we 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 disregard that too much. Mm-hmm. And there's even a criticism on the left of kind of what's called lifestyleism. Like if, if you're just the guy who goes off to live in the woods or something, mm-hmm. you're not really challenging the system. You're just, you're just engaged in what's called lifestyleism. Mm-hmm. And so there's kind of a criticism among some on the left of, of this strategy. Even like the criticism of veganism falls into this, right? Like mm-hmm. being a vegan, you're not saving any animal's life, really. Animals are still being slaughtered by the billions. It's, it's more of a, a symbol. It makes you feel good about yourself, but it's not changing mm-hmm. anything, right? Mm-hmm. So it's a call for a more broad political action. But I, I, I still find that strategy kind of appealing, that, yeah. that kind of opting out yeah. idea. Even it's if it's just personal like rather quitting than, your job, right, yeah. uh, that I'm not going to eat that crap anymore. I'm going to – I'm just going to try something different. Even if it means I have to wander about and be a hobo or something. I'm Walk the earth. <laughs> and, there, and there's that. And he's not just running away from – capitalism and you know because it's not just that he's from a rich family he's from a rich merchant family right mm-hmm. that has i think they're aristocratic and merchants they're both right yeah let me read that the opening two paragraphs yeah. a while ago there was a young man dwelling in the great and goodly city by the sea which had the name of langton on home home is h-o-l-m he was but of five and twenty winters so there's there's the start of the uh, the difficulty right like five and twenty, I'm like, what is he seventy? No, <laughs> oh, he's twenty five, right? Oh, oh. <laughs> like, yeah, twenty five. Uh, a fair faced man, yellow haired, tall and strong, rather wiser than foolisher than young men are mostly won't. Again, the language is starting to get tough, right? But right away, this yeah. is easy. This is the easy part. Uh, a valiant youth, a, and a kind, not many of were. Not of many words, but courteous of speech, no royster, not masterful, but peaceable and knowing how to forbear. <laughs> it's like uh, he can he can hang in there. He's a fray, a perilous foe, and a trusty war fellow. Uh, his father, with whom he was dwelling when this tale begins, was a great merchant, richer than a baron of the land, a headman of the greatest of lineages of Langton. Uh, Langton is the city. He lives in, yeah. and Lang- a captain, Lang- uh, and a captain. That of actually the means boring, I guess. Langdon, I guess it's in German or something. Uh-huh. It means boring. Interesting. He was yeah. of the lineage of the Goldings. Therefore, he was called Bartholomew Golden, and his son Golden Walter. Notice the the passing of the names backwards and forwards. Um, yeah, that's the uh, sort of Norwegian or Scandinavian way of doing it, right? So it's. John okay. Johnson, right? John, son of John. And then at some point, they just become fixed. And that's why there's so many Hansons around, because they're all sons of Han, right? Okay, yeah. Um, uh, now, ye may well deem that such a youngling as this was looked upon by all as a lucky man without a lack. <laughs> now, that uh, this is actually where I'm starting to get intrigued. Oh, this is the poetic stuff, right? This is the... Um, uh, this is how when you read um, the the uh, books like Beowulf, right? It's all poetry. So he's do- he's doing that. He's actually making this beautiful, right? He was looked upon by all as a lucky man without a lack, 
all the L's in there. But there was this flaw in his lot, whereas he had fallen into the toils of love of a woman exceeding fair, and had taken her to wife, she not unwilling as it seemed. So that's just hard to understand if you're not like ready for it. And then we keep going. But when they were wed, they'd been wedded some six months, he found by manifest tokens that his fairness was not so much to her, but what she must seek to the foulness of one worser than he in all ways. That's very hard to understand. Wherefore, his rest departed from him, whereas he hated her for the untruth, and her hated of him, yet would the sound of her voice, as she came and went in the house, make his heart beat, and the sight of her stirred desire within him, so that he longed for her to be sweet and kind with him, and deemed that might it be so, he should forget all the evil gone by. But it was not so. For ever when she saw him, her face changed, and her hatred of him became manifest. And however, howsoever she were sweet with others, with him she was hard and sour. Like, now you see why he's running away, right? He loves her. Yeah. He, uh, he holds her up on a pedestal. She hates him. <laughs> she has contempt for him. That makes him feel contempt for her. He doesn't want to feel contempt for her. He wants her to like him, right? And I, I, he just says, Dad, I got to leave. Right. <laughs> what ship have we got going out? Well, I gotta get out of here, Dad. And uh, and then we find out later on that his dad has been murdered by murdered, yeah, by his his wife's family. So this is this is interesting to me. He, he we're told early, right in the first like sentence or paragraph, maybe the first sent no, not the first, but the first paragraph. We're told that he actually is a fairly decent warrior. Yes. He, he has the characteristics of the classical, I guess, fantasy hero. Absolutely. We don't see him in action too much, right? No. But we're told he's a good player. And then, and then there's that moment when he gets the news that his father's been killed. And he basically has this choice, right? Do you kind of continue wandering about? Do you just kind of break that? Or do you go back? And he chooses to go back. He, he's going to go back to fight a civil war. But that's when the storm shoves him off and yep, changes his coincidence, plan. right? So he's it's it's a cycle of violence is something that's running throughout this and he was on board the cycle of violence early on. And then the first person he meets is that old man. Is that right? I it, it could very well be. Yeah, he gets to that world and he meets that man who's kind of living alone in a in a house oh, yes. or a castle. Yes. That's a great story. Yes. I know exactly and what then you're talking about. It, he gets that the feels story like very and, Odysseus to me, you know, he yeah, and that story is amazing. Tell it. And then part of that story, though, is like, how did you inherit this house? How did you get it? Where'd you come from? And he just says, like, I killed the guy who was here before. Yes. And I don't remember there being much explanation. It's just, no. again, it's like, it's almost like Empire, the cycle of violence. Like, we take your land, we kill you, and now it's ours. And And he moves on from that, too. And there's this... But he wants He's that old man for, at times from the cycle of violence. That old man wants him to be his him. son, right, and to be his yeah, heir, he does. and he, and to 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 rule this land, and even to slay him, right? Yeah, to kill him eventually. Yeah, and and that is fascinating because it, it feels like there is something going on below the surface, and it's almost like the philosophy, you know, like if 
<laughs> it's the Zen Buddhism of William Morris. You know, like his own way of dealing with um, emotional di- distress, right? Is not to um, not to give into resentment, but rather to try and pass through it and see how everyone else's story like we never see it from the from the wife's point of view at the beginning of the story what like why is she sour on him not it's not clear to me at all right i don't think i ever found out in the book what why she was like that yeah I... and and i i'm not even sure it matters but what i am sure about is that when he does have that incident where he's this guy greets him and says um please come in i'll give you food and shelter um, I'm the most noble of uh, hosts, right? And he says, so wh- how'd you get to be this way? Anybody else around here? I said, well, that's kind of a sad story. I I, uh, I was a guest on this island just like you, and I slayed the previous owner. And the said, other weird thing about that is when he talks about going to seek out the maid... Mm-hmm. He's like, don't do that. Like, they'll kill you. They'll sacrifice. <laughs> he says, the Carl said the big man would take thee and offer. And I guess it's not the maid, though. The big men would take thee and offer thee up to as a blood offering to that woman who is their mammaumet. And if you go all, then shall they do like with all of you. Mm-hmm. So Walter said, sure. Dead sure, said the Carl. How knowest thou this, said Walter. I've been there myself," said the Carl. Yeah, it's. And you know, uh, I don't know. I, I thought of this at the final passage where we learned that that war breaks out again among the bear people. Yep. At the like the last page of the book. Yep. We're told there's kind of the cycle of violence is back in. So I, I think there's a thread running throughout this about, you know. Yeah, just, but it, it, it's it's saying that violence, kind of a cyclical nature, and that that's such a big part of fantasy is a cyclical story. Right, the return of the king again. Right, mm-hmm, you, you mm-hmm. kind of go back to how it is. But for Morris, that return is to violence or to things that aren't that pleasant. Yeah, there's a. It's a. It was, that was in chapter ten, you say. Chapter ten is when he meets the maid. Okay. I think he meets the Carl on like that's like five and six. Yeah, there's like thirty six chapters, I think, or so. Um, yeah, there's a lot. Who can keep track? <laughs> it's pretty. It's pretty. It's it's pretty big for a small book, right? Um, I, I want to point out that Carl. This is uh, basically the North Norwegian. I want to say Norwegian, Scandinavian uh, word for dude. <laughs> um, dude, basically, oh, okay. dude. It, it, a dude. It's it's a guy, but especially a man, and especially mm-hmm. a servant of a lord. Not exactly like they're free men, kind of. But um, you know, like the name is a now just a name, Carl, right? You know, from The Walking Dead. Yeah, Carl, right? <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> but the important part is Carl. Um, means kind of like free man in a certain sense and there was these things called house carls right so there's the like there's some local chieftain and he's got his his guys the guys who you know uh are who's his lieutenants his his enforcers right his his men and here is a man who came to the island Pretty much, it sounds like the way our hero Golden Walter did, but 
due to the storm not exactly um, hitting him the same way. And uh, going back to what Golden Walter's character is, you pointed out, yeah, he's he's good in a fight, fast, uh, good in a fray. But actually, I think the more interesting way of describing him was in that first uh, paragraph. It says, rather wiser than the foolish, than foolisher than the young men are mostly won't. Right, so he's slightly wiser. Yeah, he's he's strong of limb and wind, right? But he's slightly wiser than other kids of his kind, right? And so when he gets to this situation, and there's this guy there, and he could take advantage in the same way that Odysseus's men are always making mistakes in their voyage across the. Uh, Mediterranean, you know, they, it's, it, I'm sure you've read the Odyssey at some point, right? Yeah, I know it pretty well. Yeah, so uh, the, the way I, uh, I, I can't help but see the Odyssey now is, is it's a series of, of scenes that allow you to interact with strangers and how to interact with strangers, and mostly they're negative. So you start off with, um, you know, the, Odysseus going into Polyphemus's house and uh, stealing his cheese and and eating his uh, drinking his wine and then Polyphemus comes home so what the hell are you doing in my house I'll show you uh, what a good host is like and then he starts eating them right so that whole idea of what what a proper response to meaning of strangers is is what the Odyssey is about it's about how to deal with people who are house guests basically. You know, in your city, in your home, in your in your cave, however it be. Um, and here we've just got one incident like that, uh, where it's explicitly, come, you know, washing up on a beach, and then uh, you've got into the house, and the rest of it is is it more into the land. But it is from people to people, and it's not just one guy doing the the um, house guesting. It's him and his girl for the rest of the book, right? And how she deals with things. And at one point, yeah, they he becomes king of like. Well, that's the weird law, right? Like, right? That, like the the when the throne is vacant, the first foreigner who shows up becomes king. Is that? It's the kind of a bizarre law. Yeah, it's like uh, how what what are we like? Oh, just like oh, you you showed up, you're the foreigner, so ridiculous. Now, I guess you're the new new ruler destined by God to, to be here. There's a lot of talk about God in here and Catholicism. It seems Catholicism is taken for granted as, like, they talk about, like, the... Well, I don't remember the word Catholic. They, I think they... That? Well, they talk about God a lot. And yes. I think there's even a few references to, like, the Virgin or something. Oh. Yeah, well... Yeah. It's I don't uh, I felt that there was a religious element going on, but it, it, I also didn't think that this goddess is actually they kept calling her a god rather than a goddess. But well, there's the maid who's a bit of a god too, yeah, right? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Is is like she's not she's more like an elf in a certain sense, yeah, right? She, she has powers. She's different. Um, but I just remember moments in which they talk to each other with like religious language, and they seem to understand each other, mm. which didn't seem right for a an extra world fantasy, a secondary world fantasy. 
Um, but anyways, I don't have any references to that. I should have wrote them, wrote them down. I, I was trying to find um, good reviews of this book, and uh, unfortunately, there there are a few reviews around. Um, there's 115 on on Goodreads, but you can't, you know, after a certain point, they're not really reviews. They're just yeah, I think you almost would need a good academic library maybe to find. I don't know. I don't know. I I, I want somebody to find really, essays. Yeah, a really good essay on most, it. Or if you have JSTOR or something, you might find eh. more. I, I don't have access to any of that stuff anymore. I, I, I like the... the I'm, I'm so down on academic stuff done for academic purposes because I I can see when... I just see bullshit written all the time. It's just a long way of saying nothing, right? Or a very small well, point. Well, there might be a lot of bullshit with them, but the scaffolding might. might yeah, sometimes. Points. I mean, it's there are good stuff too, but I did find one review. I thought this was good, um, and this is just more about how hard it is to read, but also how fun it is to read. Um, so this is from uh, a name, a woman named Debbie Zapata who rated it four out of five stars, which is something I don't do with books. But um, that's how Goodreads works, right? So yeah. it says, she says, um, uh, and I might have noticed the unusual items that caught my attention this time around. I'll mention those as I go along. But meanwhile, this is the story of Golden Walter and his quest for love, which he began after leaving his cheating wife. William Moore <laughs> noticed that he never says cheating in the book, but that's exactly what's going on. Um, William Morris wrote in a style that would verily drive some readers to the brink, but I don't mind the these, thous, and forsooths, and hithers and such. This type of language can be very entertaining. I tend to imagine some poor actress trying to be in character in a dramatic moment, hoping to remember to say her lines, which would be what the maid told our Walter when they met on the wood beyond the world. Naturally, a magical realm far out to sea. Anyway, the maid is trying to explain what Walter will need to do to survive. And at one point she says, quote, But next I must needs tell thee of things whereof I wot, and of and thou wottest not. <laughs> what? W-O-T. Right? And wottest. W-O-T-T-E-S-T. And she says, I, It took me a couple of readings to what what was meant there. <laughs> to what is to uh, know. To <laughs> like to figure out. And then, I don't know when you listen to audiobooks, though, you never stop to no, no, clarify no, these things. You just let it go, right? You can't. You have to, pretty much. I mean, it's it, first of all, you'd have to find the text in the book and then look up the spelling. But um, you can pick up a lot along the way. Anyway, she she goes on. As I said, I noticed these things uh, this time that I might not have uh, if I had been more lost in the story. For example, the lady is described at one point as being dressed, quote, in naught else but what God hath given her uh, long, crispy yellow hair. <laughs> then she says, crispy yeah, I hair? She was, she, was, she was naked for a while. Yeah, crispy, but she's got crispy hair as well as being naked, right? This is mm-hmm. supposed to be a woman who's more beautiful than Golden Walter could ever imagine, and she has crispy hair? I thought crispy meant brittle. This word makes me think of cookies and potato chips. <laughs> this is the kind of review I like, where it's it's <laughs> from a real person rather than some somebody trying to get points on their you know, academic paper. So for the sake of clear mental picture, I looked it up. Turns out crispy can also mean curly or wavy. Who knew? 
Well, of course, that makes sense, right? That's where Chris learned a lot of etymology. Here's another one. And I got a kick out of another scene where Walter smiled and louted to the lady. <laughs> I've only ever understood uh, lout to mean a clumsy, ill-tempered, boorish kind of guy. I was imagining all kinds of odd things until I got me to the dictionary and found out that lout is a verb. It means bend, stoop, or bow, especially in respect or courtesy. So if a lout louted, would he still be considered a lout? The idea leaves me dumbfounded. So this is actually a point that I really think is fascinating. So the word villain means bad guy. Mm -hmm. But actually, that's what it means today. But villain means... um, it means uh, surf, literally. So yeah, w- what's so amazing is we have adopted as a people, generally, the the values of the lower upper class, right? The that which we strive for, right? Um, so <laughs> we think he is the villain well, of the he- piece. He's the criminal of the piece. He's the baddie of the piece. He's the low-class guy, right? And a lout is a person who has to bow to you, right? That means they're like it's 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 fascinating the way we do this with our language and don't even know it. So you know when I uh, I call you this morning I say how are you, sir? I'm placing you in a rank that you are not technically uh, allowed to be in, right? Not a knight. That's a bit of an Americanism, though, isn't it? Like the kind of once you you have these more egalitarian social relations after the American Revolution, these terms became problematic, right? You couldn't call your your the person who employed you master anymore. That's right, because that implied class status. So Americans invented this term boss to right. replace master, but it didn't go away entirely. Of course, there were slaves in the South who had to continue to use the word master. And they and do that. You know, they apprentices use bosses. Like they that. do master, right? So in prison, yeah. all the all the guards are called boss. Right mm-hmm. by the by the uh, slave not the slaves they are slaves but prisoners, by, yeah. by the prisoners and the reason they're called they that is a an honorific right that is shows your I uh, there's um a kind of uh, working class sort of language used by people all the time here as well you know and it includes boss like. Uh, some salesman says, hey, boss, how you doing? Right? <laughs> Trying to sell you something. Um, similarly, chief. Right? They say, hey, chief, how you doing? And it's like, wait, how did I get this honorific suddenly from this stranger? Um, the idea uh, that language is separable from uh, a class system is crazy. And it, no, I think it's a very new world, though. It, it, like, I... I researched these, um, I forget why I was doing it. It was from some project. Mm-hmm. I'm still working on it. I was researching these re- these books on class in early modern England. And I looked at the footnotes and I was led to these early, like te- there was a lot of books written like in the 16th and 17th century, which were essentially class taxonomies of England. Mm-hmm. That people were saying like, these are like, these are the villains. These are the rogues. These are, you know, and it would list dozens of different types of people you might meet if you just kind of wander around England. And everyone had a very firm kind of term. You know, like the, the poor peasant had a certain name. The the richer peasant had a different name. And everything was very rigid. Yep. And everyone had their place. And, of course, poor laws, when those were established in the Tudor era, 
they, they built off this, these conventions. Of course, this all gets broken down in America, where the class is, at least for white people, kind of flattened and complicated. <laughs> it was for a certain and, while, and then it's, it's, it's... Well, now it's... Who knows? Right. I mean, we... That's where you get the basket of deplorables from, right? That's where you get, uh, I mean, the the terms are actually just hidden, right? Redneck. Um, That's white on white hate, right? Yeah, Um, it is. There's uh, there's, a hillbilly and there's all sorts of terms that are used to classify people into different social strata. Um, one of the really interesting things I found out about uh, this guy, William Morris, you know, he was super against class. He thought class was a huge problem. And this is coming from a guy who's in, you know, the upper strata. Um, yeah. One of, well, one Engels, of the too. That, like Engels had money and he was a, a leftist, a communist, right? Marx's yeah, it, it, right-hand hand. It's one of the things you can do when you're rich is think about... <laughs> How how your family got that way, right? In Russia, he was a prince. Yeah. Before so uh, he, when he was um, uh, really depressed about his wife cheating on him, he went. Mm -hmm. He 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 learned um, Icelandic, and then he went to Iceland. And one of the things he said about Iceland, visiting Iceland, is that um, despite the the most terrible poverty, there's nothing. Uh, so wonderful as being free of the class system. Like he goes to um, to Iceland and he sees that the people there are incredibly poor. You know, it's it's kind of a resource poor nation, and yet because they're all poor together in a certain sense, um, mm-hmm. their poverty is far less worse than the than the the class based poverty of the UK. And this is kind of his guiding philosophy for for why socialism is so important and why he got, you know, a fire lit under his ass to start a newspaper that was all about this. I mean, I, in assembling news from nowhere, I was uh taking it from the original publication in his in his newspaper and uh all the other articles that I'm excising because they're not the book are uh, you know mostly written by him I'm assuming the ones that are unattributed um, and they're all about how how the you know the working class are getting the shaft and you know here's the protest going on here these these people were beaten these people were arrested you know the the uh, there's articles about the uh, the 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 position of the police in the class system and how you know it's bad that they're doing these things, but they are also being exploited, right? So he's he really, really does have a sense of of what we would today call social justice, right? Um, hmm. Getting people into a good position so that they are not in terrible condition. And one of the one of the documentaries I heard about Molly Morris was saying um, uh, somebody visited uh, the most uh, the, the poorest people like in Scotland um, and they you know these are people who had to sell all the furniture um, mm-hmm. and they all have copies of news from nowhere in their house <laughs> oh because they're so uh, inspired by the idea of a possibility of change and that that movement uh, you know of being inspired for actual possibility of change is incredibly um, inspiring to people who just because you're in the lower class doesn't mean you're not um, a thoughtful person. 
if you can read. It's interesting this you know? return then to the Middle Ages. That was in news news from nowhere. Is yeah. this this harkening back to the Middle Ages, and you have that here too. That's his whole thing, right? Is he thinks that that's there was a more thing, egalitarian but, time, in a certain sense, which is crazy, but, but also by what what definition are we defining this egalitarianism? I I guess you know there's this idea that like the village, the serfs, there was kind of a collectivity to it, and there was like clear personal relationships between the Lord and the serf that were kind of built through. He, he romanticized it together. But, but I don't know. Also, like, I can't help but point out though, that the slaveholders in the American South in the aftermath of the revolutions of 1848, mm-hmm. they started to more and more idealize the medieval. Yeah. Well, Sir Walter Scott to justify was, uh, holding slaves. They're like, see, we're, we're just like this nobility from, medieval Europe. We're caring for them and they have these strong communities and it all became part of this broader justification of slavery. And it was really also countering that kind of the revolutionary progressivism of, of Europe at the time. Yeah, Whether it's the French Revolution. They hated the French Revolution. Did you know uh, this, putting an end to the feudal age? This fact about uh, Sir Walter Scott's book Ivanhoe was the like, yeah. most popular book ever, right? Mm-hmm. At its at mm-hmm. its time. And the it was so. It was most popular in the American South. Um, yeah, I believe. Thi- one of the things that's going on in there is you've got all these happy slaves, right? The some of the narrators of the story, the t- the tellers of the tale or the viewpoint characters are slaves. They even have like slave collars on, um, which they didn't. As far well, as the maid has a slave collar, right? Yep. Uh, uh, the maid has like a bracelet or something. We've got, uh, well, I mean, the, 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 those are all symbols, right? Even a wedding ring is a symbol of a kind of slavery to another person, right? Um, yeah, I think so. Uh, but in it, in that, um, even in a book like this, which is almost as pure escapism as, as you can mm-hmm. imagine, he literally leaves planet Earth in a certain sense. Uh, this is These are not lands of anywhere although they might rhyme with lands from places we've seen and you know they have uh you know a dwarf which is in you know other mythology this is as uh, for this point in time this is as escapist as you can get and yet he can't get away from the uh, the ideas that i think he's literally trying to escape from right like i'm just going to tell like people as you pointed out people are trying to say that this is a political work um yeah and it it isn't really a normal political work but even so he he's so thoughtful of his 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 knowledge of of what's going on in the world and and that that it even feels like it's about the class system in a certain sense um, even though we don't really see it from their point of view, right? None of the lower classes are really represented extremely well in this book, but there's almost no characters, so how could it be? Mm-hmm. It's it's fascinating that uh, here's another really amazing thing. This is this is reminds me of how when Lovecraft was a little kid, um, he he got a costume um, and called himself. Uh, the Mad Arab Al Abdul Al Hazred, right? That's where Abdul Al Hazred, the writer of the Necronomicon, came from. It was his superhero yeah, yeah. name when he was a kid, you know, because he's reading Arabian Nights. Um, same, this uh, very similar thing happened in um, William Morris's life when he was a little kid. 
he convinced his parents, and this is no small expense, to buy him a full suit of armor, like, for his size as a child. This is, you know, like, uh, today we go to the... We go to the Halloween store and get Halloween costumes for our kids. They wear it once and uh, yeah, you know, ten dollars. Uh, right, yeah. but the thing is, is that's um, yeah, it's it's a relatively cheap costume, right? And it's made in China, and they don't wear it next year because they outgrow it. Here, he he is so enthusiastic about the Middle Ages, um, and mm-hmm. the, and that period of time, he uh, he apparently yeah he read all of Sir Walter Scott's books, all forty of them, by the age of seven, which is insane. <laughs> yeah, I, I read one of Sir Walter Scott's books, <laughs> and it was it was I mean that was the easiest one. He he wrote a lot of harder ones. Um, so this guy is absolutely bursting with with ideas, and this book doesn't feel like that but you can see it has those things underneath that are sort of bubbling up here and there mm-hmm. and, and and the fact that he's really really has created what is the foundational template for the secondary world fantasy tolkien explicitly stole almost everything <laughs> um he could from william morris not just in this book which he takes the secondary world from he also he uh, you know all the all the dwarves uh, in the the Hobbit they all have these funny names right mm-hmm. Biffer and Boffer right they're all they're all taken from another book by William Morris which is a translation of the saga of the Volsungs which is that Icelandic epic oh yeah and mm-hmm. so even Gandalf. Uh, who's a wizard, right? He's actually one of the dwarves mentioned in the saga of the Volsungs. This is is like everybody. Uh, when I was a kid, I, I just thought Tolkien was exceptional. Like he was not, he was not. Uh, n- nothing came before him, right? I'd heard about these other books, but I'd never read them, and I nobody had the sort of excitement over them. Uh, in that is not to say that this is a, a book as exciting as Lord of the Rings. But this is where it starts. In a but Walter sense. never comes back, so Tolkien seems to introduce that, the return. It, it, Tolkien, Tolkien has the opposite, right? So Tolkien is yeah. a country gentleman, right? He loves being a country gentleman. Um, well, he I don't know, he loves being an Oxford Don, right? He loves the, mm-hmm. the class system. It, he, he adores the class system. Think of the relationship between Sam and Frodo, Right. Oh, Mr. Frodo, yeah, sir. Right? Um, Frodo is always very generous with his lower class people who live lower down on the hill than he does. But um, he never has Sam like struggling for class approval. Although at the end, I do note, uh, when Frodo... Doesn't Frodo go off with Gandalf and uh, Bilbo off Yeah, he to gets the west? to go to the special place. All the the land in the west, which is the another word for Elysium, right? Yeah, physically leave the the world um, uh, to the another wood beyond this world, right, off to the west. And he, I think it's only at that point does um, Sam gain access to the the level of the Bagginses, right, and become uh, kind of a little lord in his own. He inherits the house, maybe. Yeah, 
Uh, something like that. Yeah, and the, the, the movies never get this unusual. class a- aspect of it. That's no, it's it, it's really interesting because where you start in life really affects what you're interested in. It seems unless you're following some sort of formula or something. Um, and I, I was thinking about very early in our discussion about there's a uh, and I'm sure you'll know it a Philip K. Dick story that has this sort of longing for the medieval um, walking everywhere. John's world is that the one? Yeah. Well, that's the one that's where the, one there's the vision of war. The, yeah. The sequel to Second Variety, right? Right. Where it's like years later, the humans are trying to reclaim the Earth, and there's this boy who starts having visions of a medieval world. Yeah. And then the idea is like this might be an alternate reality, and then the quest is then to go back in time and stop the original war so we can restore this alternate reality there's a similar i think there's another story where um i'm i can't remember the name of it but uh they there's this lost world of earth co- lost earth colony that they're trying to bring back into the empire and so that's um, souvenir yeah. souvenir okay yeah um that sounds right um and, and they're 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 play acting at the middle ages too yeah that's right and there's this uh, it makes me almost think that that um this is something that he dick is responding to specifically i can't say that he read this well dick um, had that same fascination for the middle ages or at least the early modern for him and and the early christians too right uh, the uh, he he's very yeah. interested in he, he doesn't think about it in a class system because he's american right um mm-hmm. there, but there's a race system that he is aware of um and and it, it the idea of the boss that as you mentioned earlier also shows up in Mark Twain when Mark Twain goes to Europe right um, and he does uh, Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court yeah um, it is pure comedy because he is bringing in the ethos of the uh, uh, who I think he's parod- uh, making a parody of of the hardworking American you know go getter. Um, he's like a mechanic, right? Yep, he's a, a he's he's absolutely he's a jack of all trades, can do anything, knows everything, right? Read all the books. He's a very practical man. And what does he do when he gets to the Middle Ages? He proceeds to turn it into the United States, right, <laughs> with railroads and um, <laughs> and uh, gunpowder and <laughs> just thoughtlessly recreating the Industrial Revolution in medieval England, um, and. It is it is delightful, but his title is not sir when he you know or lord, it's yeah, boss. Boss, yeah. Boss, and that's uh, it is very. Um, it, yeah, there's a bunch of racial politics in that word boss too, because it was like okay. white people like we can't call him boss or call him master because that's what slaves, i.e., black people call their employers or masters right i don't know mm-hmm. and we can't we're not slaves that's what it came down to right we're not slaves we're we're better than them so there's kind of a there's a wonderful book called the wages of whiteness that gets into this kind of psychology of race in the 19th century why white people are so fascinated with minstrel shows mm. why they were so obsessed with the language of class and how it was framed it was all boiled under race according to this particular historian yeah, and it's it's been it's suppressed, right? Those interests are suppressed. So every once in a while, somebody 
uh, you know, comes out and does blackface and some college photos for Halloween. <laughs> um, it's like everybody's ashamed and they regret their actions and all that stuff. But it's coming from somewhere, right? It's it's the same yeah, way even that like, Prince I, Harry's I, dressed I up, up like a Nazi, right, at a Halloween costume. It's coming from somewhere. Our ancestors were intertwined with these people's ancestors. And I'm thinking about this stuff. It's in the back of my mind, and here's something. And whether, you know, it's amazing what we think through and what we don't think through in these things, right? Um, now, well, you kind of grew up in it. I, I grew up in this very white community, and I heard racist jokes when I was a kid. You know, sure. and of course, I, I would have said the word boss to my employer. I never knew there was a kind of a racial undercurrent to it going back to the 19th century. But even before we started, where? Oh, well, before we started talking on the podcast, you were talking about um, uh, the brewers. And I said, oh, Milwaukee makes sense because, you know, it's famous for brewing. Yeah, I'm from central Wisconsin. But there's all these, uh, all these baseball teams and football teams, right. That have problematic names that, Oh yeah, it's just you know the Redskins and the I don't know. There's a bunch Blackhawks. Well, Chicago Indian, Blackhawks, right. I guess, are less. Uh, the Chicago Blackhawks haven't taken the heat that the Redskins have, right? Or the Indians. Yeah, I, I do think like baseball because they have the Jackie Robinson story. They've mm-hmm. done such a good job of of kind of. Even though I think it's whiter than a lot of other sports than basketball and. Yep. It and is. football, it's not as like white as the hockey, Jackie Robinson story makes makes integration such a bigger part of their story, and they they're able to integrate baseball into the American narrative a little bit easier than I think football or basketball does. So, like they have Jackie Robinson Day, where everyone wears forty two as their number. Um, they have like the Negro League Appreciation Days. A lot of the teams have that. Mm. It's a more conscious thing for them. I I, I don't know if it's because it's an older sport or what, but. It's a, it's an interesting aspect of it. I've I've thought from time to time of teaching like a course on sports history. I I would be interested in that. I'm not you know, usually, I can't do it here in China. I'm not interested obviously. in watching sports, but I think sports movies are are fascinating because they often are about the story rather than about the, yeah. you know what's going to happen when this guy you, goes up to the plate or whatever. Yeah, I don't like, I don't like football, but this movie I think it's called uh, Any Given Sunday. Mm. Al Pacino. Oh, and Jamie Foxx. And it's all about the class structure within a football team. Mm-hmm. Like the quarterback is all the money and all the fame and all the women. Right. And there's all these defensive linebackers. And, and, and don't stuff. forget the, the owners, players. right? <laughs> yeah. And it's, you know, it's, it, I think most people watch that without realizing it's kind of like a class analysis. Well, that's, that's what usually makes something good, right? Is what my theory is, is the work that went into it before what you see on screen or, or what you see on on here and here, I, I feel that like this book is a a lot less about the plot than it is about um, the setting, and a lot more mm-hmm. about the language than it is about um, about the characters, if if that makes sense. Uh, and so like when when we have this woman talking, the lady talking um, throughout the book, I feel like he's he's fetishizing the aesthetic of, of this kind of 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 talking and thinking about how, you know, the story of um, Sir Walter, not Sir Walter Scott, uh, Thomas Mallory um, and uh, Lamore D'Arthur is, is a story of betrayal, right? Guinevere uh, cheating uh, with, um, 
on her husband, Arthur, with... This is one they base Excalibur on, right? Yes, that's right. Arthur's best friend, right? Uh, The uh, knight from France, whatever his name is, Lancelot. Um, It's a a super epic sort of internal struggle, and, and all of the symbols that are going on inside of it, which are like, Arthur gets this wound that can't heal, right? And um, there's betrayal and um, an atonement. And then what's the solution? We all got to go find the, the uh, cup of Christ, right? The Holy Grail, because that will heal the land. <laughs> it's like, well, when did the land get hurt? <laughs> but even mm-hmm. uh, all, the, uh, all the stuff in behind it, like Morgan Le Fay, fascinating psychology mm-hmm. behind what's going on there. And her son... Um, Mordred, which is you know the ultimate in baddie names, <laughs> <laughs> and he he's the illegitimate son of of King Arthur and King Arthur's sister Morgan Le Fay. Um, so he's he's not only is a, he a bastard, but he's a um, uh, product of incest. But doesn't that make him even more fit for the for the uh, princehood? You know, I mean, this is how it works in in traditional Hawaiian. Uh, you know, kingship is the brother marries the sister and the baby becomes the prince on both ends, right? And uh, mm-hmm. we, for Europe, that's taboo. But uh, all of that stuff that's churning underneath makes Excalibur an amazing film, right? Because they are yeah. tapping into that. And here, I think he's what he's done is he's done the same thing, um, but he's done it sort of as an escape for himself, he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to recreate this language that I loved in Mallory. And I'm going to set it in a place that isn't this place because I don't want to be here right now. And here it is. I, I hear there's another book by him called The Well at World's End. Um, that's yeah, it's another similar. fantasy book. You, have you read that? I guess it's similar. I haven't read it. Okay, I, 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 I'm kind of tempted to read it, but I think I'll wait a while just because this is tough. This is tough listening because of how how uh, webbed the uh, language is. And I, it almost needs you to sit down with the paper to just discern what all the vocab means. Because I'm pretty good at vocab, you know. I've been doing this a long time. i fetishizing all these old weird books nobody wants to read. And I was so like, I, I missed that one. I missed this one. And you, you can kind of pick things up from context. But it is a, it, it, there's something about um, pre-television and pre, uh, pre-literacy. The way at which you, you weave words is Well, I was thinking about what important. you said about the, the Odyssey mm-hmm. and this kind of episodic nature of it Mm -hmm. it's you go from here to there and it's i don't know if that helps with memory for telling the story or if like with a big book you read like a big novel you can go back to you can reread sections you know you read it several times but in in a more of an oral tradition this is a better way of telling tales the more episodic way and now we're we have this tv renaissance where everything is becoming episodic again Mm. Right, where you have these long stories, but you tell them in bits, little mm-hmm. chunks, little encounters over five years, or whatever. Yep, and you can break you can break up things 
you know, and you can bring them back together and re- remake them. But I think it all really, all, it all really works when it's it's coming from a real place underneath. That uh, so even though this book is not a book I would recommend to everybody, um, because it is very difficult, and especially in audio. And um, I think it's very interesting because of how how thoughtful the guy behind it is even though this is a book about escape i think it's a book ultimately about him escaping from sort of the more serious things that he's doing all day long which is you know running a a whole uh art movement basically arts and crafts and uh involved with uh business and I mean, literally, he's he's got way too many. He's one of the busiest men ever, like super busy all the time, and and he's got this sort of uh, resentment from from his own life. This is the way you you know people always say about Tolkien that uh, Lord of the Rings is his escape from World War One. While World War One is raging while he's doing it, and he's off in his lost land. Um, weaving together a story basically as an excuse, he says, to to have reason to have elfish, this language he's made up, have something to talk about. You know, if you make up a if you make up your own code uh, or cipher, you need to have something to send the message, you know, to test it out. <laughs> so he sa- he's he says that he wrote the Silmarillion uh, for purposes of you know, exploring and figuring out how an elfish language, a made-up language, would work, and then Lord of the Rings comes, uh, uses that material as background. But ultimately, what that leaves out is the fact that this is all a way to escape the world, right? I don't want to like. I, I see people on Twitter talking about uh, somebody named Kavanaugh, who I believe there's <laughs> something going on in the American I heard politics about right this now. Guy. Yeah, I mean, it is literally everywhere right now. Nothing but pretty much from everybody on Twitter. And and I'm lost in this other world. Well, that's a one way to deal with uh, stuff you don't want to hear in the news. Well, I think that's why William Morris doesn't want people to say this is some kind of social attract. Because that, that's part of his life, right? But it's yes. not the whole of his life. Yes, and probably his comrades, who maybe they are just up to so all they are is socialism, yes. and that's all they're about. You know, assume William Morris is the same way, and and peg that, and then you know, he's a much more complex person than just a just a guy who goes to socialist meetings all day. Yes, and right. he he was super involved in in, in pushing socialism. Uh, uh, then one of the things I excised from the news from nowhere. Um, assemblage was uh about how we really we got to push for this eight hour work week or eight hour work day mm-hmm. right a five day work week and an eight hour work day we got to push for these things it's not going to come easy well guess what we got it we lost it a while ago but we had it for a while and mm-hmm. now i mean that is that is, if nothing else is impressive but with a guy this um bursting with energy and thoughtfulness thinking about what's going on in the world like he didn't choose to be a socialist when he was young right he he it was a crisis that came upon him and he accepted a choice that he made is the way he yeah. puts it 
And I think if your work is very diverse, like his is, mm. you know, a 12 hour day is a different feel than if you're at a machine for eight hours, you know, or 12 hours or 10 hours. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think uh, he he's talks I, I about the of importance of work. Everybody mm. needs to work, but they also need to have that's why the arts and crafts movement, right, is that you yeah, have to be engaged with the material. And he was super down on everything that was made shittily, right? He wanted anything that you buy, in, you know, from a store should be well made and something you want to have in your house, not just sort of have to do the job for a while. You know, you don't have a paper bag when you could have a canvas bag. Is sort of the idea. And if you have a canvas bag, you might as well have a beautiful design on that canvas bag. Hey, guess what I make? <laughs> beautiful. Well, I don't know if it's the same in Canada. Like in, in the United States, you have all these people who are in a factory all week. It's some miserable job. They hate making stuff. Maybe it's even like a window factory or a furniture factory and they're mm-hmm. miserable. Mm-hmm. But, in, you know, on the weekends, they're making benches and stuff in their basement. Mm-hmm. But they're like intellectually engaged in that process. Yeah. And the work, it's not really work at that point. It's not degraded. And there's this term by some labor historians, like the degradation of work mm-hmm. in modern modern era with scientific management and technology. And I, I think that's where some of the, the, the idealization of the of the early modern or the pre or the medieval comes from. Dick certainly had this, Philip Dick. Mm-hmm. You know, with the, this fascination with the tinkerer and the repairman. Yes. That's like, his, like, doesn't all his novels have, like, one character who's a repairman? <laughs> it, it, it seems it comes up a lot. It, it, even when it's not even when it's not the focus of the story, right? That is yeah. often what the guy was doing when the story And, of course, it's like popular. Him. That's the whole point of the yeah. novel is a work. Or and, even, like, a story happens. like uh, uh, The Hanging Stranger, right? Which has nothing <laughs> to do with TV repair. He's he has a TV repair shop and he's digging it. He's working in his basement when it happens. And that the 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 ethos of of work that he's got going on is not wholly dissimilar from that of of uh, Morris. It's just that you know they're they come from different places. I it, it would I would be really interested to know what would what Morris had he lived longer. Would have thought of like um, Henry Ford's, you know, creation because mm-hmm. it seems well, antithetical in a certain way to what he's about, and yet he couldn't. I don't think he'd be dumb enough to deny the power of. Well, of I think that. this is. Did, didn't News from Nowhere come out after Edward Bellamy? Yes, it did. Looking backward, so Bellamy, although that's before Ford, he certainly envisioned Ford and Fordism. Mm-hmm. But for him, it's liberatory. It's like you get the machines to do it all. You're not – there's no drudgery anymore. There's no hard labor. It's just you put in a few hours working at the machine every week maybe. And, you know, you just consume what you want because we're post-scarcity, right? There's not there, – you just spread around the little labor that's left. So technology becomes a way to free us from all that. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, Morris would have none of that. For him, it's you got to – it's got to be the mental and physical connection, that's important. I, I, Marx has this idea, too, that the horror of capitalism, besides exploitation, is that it alienates us from our own work, right? You can spend all day making shoes, and you don't feel a connection to those shoes. They're just, you know, like anything else. You're just commodified uh, entirely. I think also uh, you see that in Dick. In, um, there's a story we did. I think you were on the podcast for that sales pitch. Remember that yeah. one? Yeah. Where mm-hmm. you've got a replacement for 
a robot replacement for a man who can not only, you know, do all your handyman jobs at home that, you know, is part of being a man, you know, f- painting the fence and fixing the door hinges and all that stuff, but also it can even replace you at work. And and then in mm-hmm. other stories by Dick, you have uh um what's the one we uh, another one recently we did where you've got uh a stove that oh, you just wave your hand over it and it it cooks the dinner right there's no is that in um human, human is. is yeah yeah and there's a really there's nothing there's nothing to do for a woman there's nothing to do for a man so where you know in that industrial equation of modern reality when you're not an artist none of his characters i mean the closest he comes to um artist is you know a galactic pot healer right where you yeah, other people's pots apple, though it's just the uselessness of his job. He's on the dole, right? He has yep. to go into work every day, but there's no pots to heal. Yeah. And uh, they, they just he's not even making new pots. But at the end of that yeah. book, what's he do? He becomes his own potter, right? He becomes a potter. And that's one of the, I mean, he Dick is good at writing stories, but that be, that becoming from an industrial fixer to uh, mm-hmm. a creator of unique products. And, the joke is at the end, right? And the pot was terrible. <laughs> we just started. <laughs> That's right. Um, but it's also a nice, you know, joke at the point of like, I'm going to uh, do this. I'm going to transform my life. And then, oh, shit. <laughs> you don't know. There's no guarantee that he's going to do better in the future. But um, in uh, Man in the High Castle, right? Um, the. Okay. The jewelry making. Yeah, the they, guy they starts the business. Right, they're they're jewelry. they're in the business of making guns, right? Fake guns. Uh, well, mm-hmm. the real guns. They're just fake antiques. And then they leave that and get into the jewelry business, right? And that the the symbols or the things that they're creating are not, um, unlike Morris, you know, they're not uh, sort of medieval two dimensional birds and vines right patterns Mm -hmm. they are abstract um almost zen uh cohen's of um of physicality and and this is the uh, you know his wife's really into making jewelry he gets into the business and he sees that and there is value in this right and that Mm -hmm. that sort of thoughtfulness is in and what makes this piece exist and just like thinking of how like that tiny little sort of influence has made George R. R. Martin, you know, a wealthy man, right? <laughs> ultimately, there was something new created out of all of these weird thoughts going on in this 19th century guy's um, fantasy of escape. I, I I think it's very important this book. I'm just I'm not sure it's the greatest book ever, but I think it's very important. Because it does something, this is the beginning, in the same way that that pot at the end of Galactic Pot Healer might not be the best pot, but it's pointing in the right direction, right? No longer being, uh, fixing other people's work and not even having real work at all. If he had those pots, if he had had, um, you know, business coming in, he wouldn't have had time to do all the stuff he does, right? And that... That god, the Glimmung, who comes in and says, you're needed, you you have value. Yeah, you have help a project. Me That's help thing, me in right? this it's massive project. Support. This is a project, project that will strain everyone. Useful. 
either. I mean, it, it's still a project. It's better than being on the dole. Well, it, right. it's a, what, what are they going to do? They're going to restore a cathedral, right? What is more epic than, than that? What is more, um, you know, to, to uh, uplift a sunken cathedral? It's so metaphorical. That book is so good yeah. because of that. And, and you can see, like, it's not a fantasy book at all, but you can see the strivings and the, the longings that the, these are not entertainments exactly, right? That's not what they're for. Yeah. They, the, the product of them being entertaining is a byproduct of their strivings and their longings. And the fact that, they, you know, sometimes they're commercial, like in the case of Dick, is he's almost exclusively thinking about commercial, you know, making it commercial. Um, there is not that case with Morris, right? Morris is, he is successful. He is a successful businessman in a way that Dick really wasn't. But his success is like, you know, this book was self-published, right? Back then, uh, most of the books that we're still talking about from back then that are, um, you know, sort of innovative in some way uh, are not commercially published. They're published in self-published journals. Like um, Herland is not Mm -hmm. published in a paperback or even hardback until uh, I think the 70s. And, And it's like, how did this? How did these things come into being? Is because there's passionate visionaries who have stories that need to be told and want to be laid out. I think it's really important. Again, not the greatest book. <laughs> Very important. I can see why. I can see why people point to this book. Yeah, I, I do too. I enjoyed it. I, I think it's something I'm going to come back to. Mm, yeah, I think it would try. benefit from a reread because I'll. I know once I got into it, I was much more happy with it. I was like, this is going to be tough. This is going to be tough. And then, you know, just get tr- trying to get back into it, start it again, make sure I'm okay. I'm sort of in the right mode for it. And then once it clicked in, it was very easy listening. Um, it, it, it's been a while since I reread Joyce, Ulysses, but mm. I, that was my experience with Ulysses back in college. It took me like three reads and then like one listening to an audio, a really good audio version of it. Mm. And then it started to come together and it had that same kind of episodic, you know, well, that nature. literally it's is just right. these things that happen to different to this guy. Right. Yeah, It's a retelling of the uh, Odyssey. Right. right. Yeah. It's just a one guy's bad day. Right. Yeah. I haven't read it, but um, yeah, uh, it's basically it's, it's kind of like the Odyssey in that way. It's everything that happens to him is kind of bad. Yeah. Right. His wife's cheating on him during the day and he just doesn't want to go home to face that. So he just kind of wanders about. And, and he different things happen to him. Like he's humiliated at work. He's humiliated at a bar. There's one scene where he kind of masturbates on a beach looking at a young girl. Oh, and it's just like a really bad day, ultimately. And he gets home at 2 a.m., crawls into bed with his wife, uh, head to feet, because he doesn't even like face her directly it's there's it's, a connection worth, between all these books is uh, people having their wife cheat on them yeah I guess. <laughs> it's like well i can't go home i might as well write this book <laughs> oh that's sad okay well i think we did pretty good it's good yeah for oh yeah now feeling i didn't understand, understand the book i think i did This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. 
please join us at www.sffaudio.com.